following program has the potential, dare I say, probability to give offense. It's Tuesday, May 5th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. One definition of political gaffe is admitting out loud what everyone else knows to be true. Michael Kinsley, founding editor of Slate, coined that definition. Then there is the saying the quiet parts out loud type gaffe that Donald Trump has perfected so as to make it appear that it's not a gaffe. This is why when Texas Governor Greg Abbott was caught on tape admitting to what clearly is scientific fact... It was regarded as somewhere between a Kinsley gaffe and a Trump blurt and maybe a run-of-the-mill damaging leak on tape. So unearthed by the Texas website Quorum Report, here is Governor Abbott, for the first time admitting, in a way he will never do in public, that the state's plans to ease restrictions will necessarily lead to an increase of easing coffins into the ground. How do we know reopening businesses won't result in faster spread or more cases of COVID-19. Listen, the the fact of the matter is uh, pretty much every scientific and medical report shows that uh, whenever you have a reopening, whether you want to call it a reopening of business or just a reopening of society uh, in the aftermath of something like this, that it actually will uh, lead to an increase in spread. It's almost ipso facto. Aha! goes the coverage of this. The governor is sanguine in public, but realistic, bordering on gimlet-eyed in private. That's a disconnect. You see, I, I interpret it differently. I think Governor Abbott is realistic in private. That's good. He seems to be, in my opinion, too aggressive in reopening his state, but it's his state, and those are his people. And the people of Texas are largely anti-government overreach types. And so that's why I'm kind of glad that this is a sign that Governor Abbott is in the reality community, not the faith-based community or the ideologically driven community. It seems that this is the best we could hope for in Texas, that the person in charge is not a total idiot or a madman. In Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, former radio shock jock, they have a little bit of both. In several states of the former Confederacy, I wouldn't be so confident about leadership, but Abbott knows this could all go wrong. And that's a good thing. I mean, it's a bad thing it could all go wrong, but it's a good thing that he knows it. And if it all goes wrong, if it all goes wrong in the worst way, you'd hope that he would be the sort who will at least pull back before it's too late. On the show today, I spiel about some bad conclusions about Joe Biden's guilt. But first, that part about going out and coming back, well, that's what we call the hammer and the dance. Texas loves its firearms and the smiths who craft them. That's the hammer. The two-step is a well-known Texas dance. But I'm not sure the state would be great at the hammer and the dance. That is Tomas Poyo's phrase for negotiating the end of quarantine and the phased-in return to, and then maybe retreat from, the normal way of doing things. He wrote about this in an influential post in Medium, and now Thomas Poyo is up next on The Gist. Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Now, you probably heard that phrase. You probably know that George Santa Anna said it. But who was George Santa Anna? Was he an historian? No, he was a philosopher, essentially, and did some poetry. 
How about the man in the gray flannel suit, which pretty much came to define the white collar worker of the post-war period? Was that coined by a sociologist or an expert in industry? It was not. It was a novel by Sloan Wilson, who was a novelist and wrote for The New Yorker. The point is sometimes people, smart people, in industries that are not the exact industry that they're talking about come up with an insight or even a phrase that is extremely valuable. Such is the case with the phrase, the hammer and the dance. It is the phrase of Tomas Poyo, who is an engineer and has an MBA from Stanford, but writing on Medium a few weeks ago, he looked at how the coronavirus might proceed, and he laid out a case that first, it will have to be reacted to by strong quarantines, and then a little bit nudging ourselves out to see what the situation is, perhaps going back again to see if things aren't going well. Thomas Poyo joins me now. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for that introduction and thanks for having me. So the reason I raise that is not to raise a red flag. Listen, audience, this guy is not a virologist, he's not an epidemiologist, but I did read your writing on Medium and this concept, because it is backed up by great data, has really taken hold to the extent that the New York Times, in describing what the next two years or 18 months might look like, hit upon your phrase as the most apt description. We might have to do the hammer, which we're experiencing now, and then different little explorations to see how much interacting we can do after the hammer is lifted. So on that basis, I guess you're doing something right. Yeah, and uh, honestly, I think that criticism is super important. You have suddenly a guy that comes from nowhere, has no titles, and writes some pieces that read over 60 million people, and might have some influence in how the epidemic is managed. You need some oversight, you need some checks and balances, and when the, this person doesn't have these titles, you need to ask questions. So I think uh, it's very fair to ask this question, and, and I'm glad people are asking it. Yes. So what made you so interested in the topic before we get to how you came to your conclusions? Obviously, as a yeah. person living through this, you want to know some answers. But I guess my, my question is a little more pointed, which is, why did you direct your curiosity in this form? Around February, when I started seeing the patterns uh, on the coronavirus and how problematic it was. I left everything else I was doing and just started looking into it, but much more by curiosity than anything else. And that snowballed. I first, I just looked into, um, into it and po posted on Facebook for my friends and more and more people started being interested in it. And then I noticed that many people were not taking it as seriously as they should have. My parents back in Spain were not. My company uh, was not closing when I thought they should have. Um, and that was the same problem that everybody was going through. So that's when I decided that I needed to, to be a bit more vocal about this. And uh, I started posting even more. And one of my friends asked me, hey, can you summarize all of that? content that you've posted in one place. And that's the medium post that I wrote. So it was more of an accident, an interest in pushing this message rather than something um, designed. 
Yeah. And so the hammer is what we're experiencing now, unless we're in Georgia, which is you got to stay inside <laughs> the hammer of the hammer of social distancing, but also not going out. Yeah, it's onerous. It's a hammer. And the dance is the another way to say it would be the toe touch, but it's not that's not as uh, nice and mellifluous a phrase as the hammer and the dance. And the toe touch is will when things start to subside, we'll maybe go out gradually and thoughtfully and among uh, just certain groups or in certain areas. And then we might have to dance back inside. So it's not one of those dance like no one is watching. The dance is the the in and out of um, a little bit here and a little bit there. That's right. And uh, being very careful on, on what you do and, and what works and a lot of it is going to be around figuring out the right measures that let us out and uh, being very careful about uh, the steps that you take in your dance. Mm -hmm. And some of them are going to be missteps and then you'll need to go back to the hammer. But hopefully you dance gracefully enough that you, uh, you can avoid it the way that, for example, South Korea or Taiwan have done it so far. What are the inputs that we need to determine how much or the type of dance, the choreography of the dance, if you will? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. The dance depends on the measures that you need to take. And so as a result, you need to understand which one are all these measures that can reduce your transmission rate um, to a level that doesn't have an epidemic. So if you remember, transmission rate is, is R. Today, uh, we believe R is something like three, which means that any person has uh, infects three more people um, on, on average uh, if there's no measures. And you want to reduce that to just below one. It's just mm -hmm. below one and not zero because it's very expensive to reduce R. You don't want to uh, spend too much money on it. Uh, you, want, you don't want to close the economy or hurt the economy too much, but you want to, to have it below one. And so the entire goal is what is the set of measures that is going to get us just below one. And then you want to track each one of these. From what we know today, the measures are probably a combination of testing, contact tracing, isolations, quarantines, mask wearing, hygiene, public education, physical distancing, and maybe a couple more like travel restrictions and social gathering restrictions. Each one of them, we need to know that we're doing it well so that uh, we feel confident that our dance is not going to get us back to the hammer. So for example, testing. What does good testing mean? Well, it turns out that most of the East Asian countries that are doing this well are having around 3% of their tests that turn out positive. Out of 100 mm -hmm. tests that they make, only three of them turn out positive, which means that they're testing a lot of people. So if they are seeing this, then we can use as an indicator the percentage of positives for the tests to know that we're dancing properly for the tests. And we can do that for each one of these measures so that we feel confident that yes, we're dancing properly. What about there was a test uh, or a result that was announced and it's preliminary in New York State that 20% of New Yorkers in this somewhat upstate mall tested positive for the antibodies. So how would we incorporate a statistic like that if it's validated into the dance? It is uh, one of the most interesting debates, I think, over the last week or so. And it is a data point that, uh, among many other data points, and one of the issues is it is hard 
to make sense of all of these data points together. For example, there was another serological test in Santa Clara County that also suggested that a lot of people, many more people than we thought were infected. But right. you have but I think other- that that from what I understand, that Santa Clara test was flawed in many ways. I mean, understandably in its design about how it was opt in and the New York test is maybe better designed because it was more randomized, although not perfectly well, designed and again, not validated. So that's the, the problem when you go into the detail of each one of them. You're right. But then in, um, in New York, it was out of a sample of people picked up at a supermarket. So it is a biased sample, too. But it's normal to have a biased sample because it's very difficult to get thousands or tens of thousands of people to opt in into a blood draw. And so by default, all of the data points that we have, all of them in this epidemic are flawed. The question is not what is the perfect information, but rather how do we take all this imperfect information and we put it together in a way that is consistent. So we don't know today what you're uh, referring to would determine what we call the infection fatality rate, IFR. What percentage of the people who are infected die? And that number is extremely important because if it turns out to be 0.1%, then it means that this is close to a flu. And then we probably should just let it run. Whereas if it's close to 1%, it's 10 times deadlier, then we shouldn't. And maybe also there are some chronic conditions, for example, lung problems for a big share of the people who have this then that should also uh, influence. So I would say that we need to check that a lot. We need to be very on top of these um, tests and we need to make sense of all the data points that we have to adjust this infection fatality rate. And if it turns out to be very low, then we should very seriously consider the herd immunity strategy. And if it turns out to be very high, then it's the hammer and the dance strategy that makes more sense. That was my question. The herd immunity, that's not really part of the dance. That's like winning the dance or the culmination of the dance. If we do achieve herd immunity, which seems unlikely, but if we do, then we won't be dancing. Is that is that right? Yeah. So I, The way I see it, there's three different strategies that might end, end up converging depending on the situation. But first one is you don't do anything. You don't do anything. This infectious disease runs amok, it it, um, infects everybody, and then around, say, 60 to 80% of people uh, end up infected, a bunch of them die, but now that everybody is infected, everybody's immune, or enough people are immune that this dies down on itself, at least for this year, maybe it comes back next year. Um, So that's the herd immunity strategy. Then there's a second strategy, which is flattening the curve which basically Mm. is the same, except that you try to not overwhelm the healthcare system because we know that the fatality rate increases if the healthcare system is overwhelmed and there's not enough ICU beds, not enough ventilators, and so on and so forth. So it is also to potentially, eventually reach the um, herd immunity, but doing it more slowly, more carefully to not overwhelm the healthcare system and as a result, not over increasing the fatality rate. And then the third strategy is, I think, the hammer on the dance, in which you're not trying to have this slow burn of cases. Now, if you do, that's fine. You want it to be in a control way uh, that minimizes it. But your goal is actually to not have the slow burn. And so as a result, you shouldn't be 
reaching the um, herd immunity level. Maybe you do if it takes four years for us to figure to figure out a vaccine. But the goal is to avoid it because there, the, the consequences might be bad and we have a hard time figuring out what those consequences are. But based on the available information, we might say, hey, they're too high for us to take the risks. So let's dance and avoid herd immunity. You know, I think it may be in the abstract, it might seem harder to perform the hammer than the dance just because, uh, I don't know, it seems like it takes more strength. Uh, d- dancing is a fun le- leisure activity for some. But I, I think societally, especially in our society, the dance is much harder. The dance is much more based on a subjective analysis. The hammer is a blunt instrument, literally, but it's binary. Stay in. That's easy. I mean, you might be getting something wrong, but the dance can go wrong in so many ways, can be applied in so many ways, and can be argued with in so many ways. Yes, absolutely. It's very easy to apply a hammer and it's very difficult to dance. You need to to be skilled. You have to have learned how to dance. I agree with you. And, And as we know, there are some countries that were dancing well, such as Singapore, that end up having an outbreak and then they need a hammer and then they go back to dance to dancing. So you're right, it is it is hard to dance. You need to do to take all these measures and, and have them work well for you to dance confidently. And some of them are easy, some of them are complex. For example, it is conceptually easy to tell everybody, hey, wear masks make them out of a cotton t-shirt and everybody should be wearing a mask. That conceptually is pretty easy. And also the enforcement is relatively easy because if you're in public and people see you and you don't have a a mask, then that's a problem. Conversely, there's others that are substantially harder. And an example is contact tracing. If uh, we want to do it through an app, the way that Singapore wanted to do it, then you need everybody to be using an app and everybody to have Bluetooth enabled, and you need not just the 20% or the 30% of the population to be using that, but maybe 80%. So you need to figure out all the people in the country to be using this, and you need to have a privacy conversation around what kind of data uh, is uh, sent to the investigators, and you need the investigators to be able to look at that data and take it into consideration when they're doing their investigation. So that's an example of a very complex part of the dance. So I want to go back to one thing, which is how you came up with the structure of the hammer and the dance. And you had people in your own lives, your company, your parents, you said, weren't taking it that seriously. And then you came up with this argument, you buttressed your argument, you labeled your argument. Did you use them as a focus group, essentially, to see if this argument on the page was convincing to them? Yes, it was with my company, but it was with my uh, with my family too. The problem is, if you're just in a conversation, that is very hard to do, because you're gonna use an, an argument, and they're gonna answer with another argument, and then you're mm-hmm. gonna use another one. And so the conversation doesn't work with a situation like this. You need an expose. You need to put together a presentation, a document, say, hey, this is all the evidence, and then the main way that I got feedback on these arguments was through Facebook. Uh, I mentioned before that I posted every day or so on Facebook, a lot of analysis, and I could get a lot of answers from a lot of people that were analyzing what I said, that were finding the holes in the data, in the arguments, and doing two weeks of this iteration puts you in a very strong position to then put out there something that uh, makes sense. 
The reason that I ask, it just strikes me that a lot of argumentation these days, we say argumentation and maybe in the back of our minds, we think, oh, the the design is to convince someone, but it's not. It's to confirm an audience's worldview and to get some popularity or clicks or approval or maybe to monetize that, telling people what they already know. But you actually were going about it to try to convince people. And therefore, the methods that you used are a little different than the methods that we often seen, see in argumentation, the usual kind. It just strikes me that you came up with the framework that has become the framework for how to conceptualize this. And you were also quite diligent in how you went about constructing the argument using feedback and stress testing. And I don't know, I think maybe a lot of other people who try to put ideas out there could take a lesson in the abstract, a lesson from you and your methods in how you put together the hammer and the dance argument. Yeah. So um, in most of uh, life, the world doesn't change that much. The world changes slowly enough and the consequences of our actions are far enough in the future that we can keep our model of how the world works and we don't need to revise it and it's fine, right? So that's why I think confirmation biases, bias exists. You grow up, you create your understanding of the world, your framework of how the world works, and then you don't need to revise it too much because the new data that comes, if it, if it strengthens your vision of the world, you're going to take it in. And if it doesn't, you're going to disregard it. And so that's an, an example is, is fake news, right? When, when you are able to select the reality that is relevant for you, it's because reality doesn't have immediate consequences on you. That changes during an epidemic because the reality is going at your accelerated speed. And if you don't take it into consideration, you're going to have an accident. That changes a lot because when people before could tell them themselves stories and not listen to the data, you can't do that anymore in an epidemic. And a lot of people did not understand that because they're not used to it. So in my case, what I did was not as much trying, like coming up with an idea and then trying to convince people, but rather looking mm -hmm. at the data, understanding what is happening, and then trying to make the consequences as clearly communicated as possible. So it's not the story defines the data, but the data defines the story. Thomas Poyo has been writing about coronavirus and medium. He also tweets interesting things at T-O-M-A-S-P-U-E-Y-O. -E and he invented the uh, phrase, the hammer and the dance, which might just be our reality for more than a year to come. Thank you, Tomas. Thank you very much. And it was a pleasure uh, being with you today. And now the spiel. Writing in The Nation magazine, Cornell philosophy professor Kate Mann had an essay out today titled, I Believe Tara Reid, and You Should Too. I will cut to the chase. No, we shouldn't. But I'll also say what is left out of this essay, which we shouldn't disbelieve her either. So much of the essay actually concerns itself with that point, not disbelieving the accuser, really any accuser, but this accuser specifically. But it then argues, and because we shouldn't unfairly subject her to a state of disbelief, we can only come to the conclusion that Reed really was raped by Joe Biden in 1993. But that's not how it works. The first assertion that caught my eye in the essay and drew my ire was this in the subhead, which is also repeated in the essay. We already knew that Biden is the type, the type. 
So man doesn't exactly to get to this point, man doesn't exactly come out and just say hashtag believe women or hashtag I believe Tara Reid because I believe women. She adds an extra step of Biden. She writes, quote, we feel we need him to be innocent. But these reasons add up to little more than the basis for highly motivated reasoning, post hoc rationalizations for the foregone conclusion that, of course, he didn't do it. As we have seen time and time again, such conclusions do a profound injustice to women, amounting to what the philosopher Miranda Fricker calls testimonial injustice, where someone is not believed because of her social position, in this case, being a woman in a historically patriarchal society in which powerful and privileged men have long been deemed more credible in these sorts of situations. So it's not that they're women, it's that they're women in a patriarchal society, which is to say, Almost all societies in existence, no disrespect to the bri of Costa Rica. This is just a few extra sentences that don't change the premise of writing hashtag believe women. Personally, I believe we do injustice to women when we disbelieve them about something that actually happened, not because they're women and this is a society, but because not believing things that actually happen, that did happen, is inherently unjust. Are women subjected to this form of injustice more than others? They are. But what we should strive for is not a correction based on who is the victim and what is the gender of those who are believed. What we should strive for is merely an accurate accounting of what happened and what didn't happen. And by the way, an extension of that principle is to withhold judgment when no firm judgment about a situation can possibly be rendered. So in the paragraph I just read, I want to point out some other things that I disagree with. So when Mann wrote, these reasons add up to little more than the basis for highly motivated reasoning, post hoc rationalizations for the foregone conclusion that of course he didn't do it. I'd like to point out that post hoc means after the fact, but we're here to determine the facts. Maybe Kate Mann isn't, but I am and you should be. Saying post hoc assumes an event or fact, and that fact is not in evidence. It's not semantics. It's indicative of the mindset of this essay. Like when Mann writes, why are people still refusing to believe Tara Reid? Refusing, not declining or opting not to. As if given the ambiguities of play, it's only an act of will of consciously working very hard not to allow such clear facts to penetrate and take hold. Man writes of the moments right after the alleged assault, quote, then he pointed his trademark finger at her, you're nothing to me, nothing. Before walking away, he clapped her on her shoulders, quote, you're okay, you're fine. This is man's own voice, except of course she wasn't. No, not of course. If it was of course, then there would be no debate. There'd be no necessity to write an article whose very purpose is to declare that you believe this event occurred. The entire essay reads a little like a religious text, which dismisses agnosticism with a hand wave and a declaration. <laughs> That's quite an objection. But since God is real, we know it can't be true. Otherwise, God wouldn't be real. Although maybe agnosticism or atheism or religious text is the right frame because this is all about belief and her belief in Tara Reid. Man goes on to tackle some points that have been used against Tara Reid's credibility. And I do agree. A lot of these points have been overblown. But I don't think this defense really holds much water. In fact, Man writes of the fact that Tara Reid filed a sexual harassment claim, but then backed off. She says, quote, it amounts to having described something de re, but not 
dedicto, speaking of a thing without using the word for it. I don't know, maybe the correct term is degalinus, which is Latin for poultry, because Reed told the AP that she chickened out of saying that she was sexually harassed. She also says there might well have been a box to check for sexual harassment, but the box went unchecked. I don't know, under allergies, let's hope I list penicillin, not deray penicillin or dedicto penicillin, actual penicillin right there on the form. What of the fact that Tara Reid amplified her story over time? Well, yeah, it's not necessarily disqualifying, but this argument just brought me up short. Quote, a great deal has been made of her supposedly changing her story, but most of these, quote, changes are rather a matter of her having enlarged her account over time. And adding to one story, when ready and willing to do so, does not amount to contradicting it. Again, the part about when ready to do so assumes it is a truth that you are ready to share, not a story that you are embellishing. And I do think it's fair to at least question why Reed, for a year, alleged hair and neck touching and then enlarged the story to rape. It's not nothing. It's not everything, but it's not nothing. Could be that she's finally ready. Could be something else. I was going through the National Registry of Exonerations, and there are dozens of cases of witnesses changing their story at trial or pre-trial, amping up and embellishing the implications of what they supposedly saw and getting a conviction, a false conviction. As I said, I was reading it in the Registry of Exonerations. Finally, there is this part of man's piece, which brings up a point I've been wanting to mention for a while. Some listeners might not like it. I'm going to say it anyway. So I already quoted this line of the article. Given this strong evidence, why are so many people still refusing to believe Tara Reid? Now, the answer man gives is, quote, among the primary reasons, an unwillingness to believe that Biden is, quote, the type and sheer political inconvenience. But we know, alas, that Biden is the type. Man goes on to make the case that the type who touches a woman's shoulders and smells her hair, as we've all seen Joe Biden do, is the type to use his finger to penetrate a young staffer alone in an empty corridor. Is there a study of handsiness that shows this to be the case? Is there evidence that rapists start as shoulder rubbers? The belief stems from an ideology that placing your hand on a woman's body against a woman's will is on a continuum where that's on one end of it and rape is on the other end of it. It's all part of a piece. I don't think that's necessarily wrong for some people who do this. I'm sure that's accurate. That's the way to describe it. But I think that this could also be seen not on the I take what I want irrespective of the wishes of women continuum, but on the I am an active empathizer who has always used touch continuum. Because I think there's a huge difference between Biden's shoulder rubs and hair sniffs and assault. And it's a difference not of degree, but of kind. So many of the anti-Biden arguments will say, no, it's of degree. I'm here to make the case, not necessarily. So no rapist, no assaulter actually thinks that rape is an adaptive strategy that aids them in doing better in the world and succeeding in however they define success. They, rapists don't think that rape gives them status, at least not in our society. It doesn't give them power. It doesn't give them credibility. It doesn't allow for professional advancement. 
I mean, many assaulters know they have to cover their tracks. They have to deny it. Cosby Weinstein, most stranger rapists. Yes, there are also the assaulters. This was mentioned in the essay who tell themselves that women, quote, really want it, but they don't brag about it mostly in most mixed company. They don't do it thousands of times in front of television cameras. They don't honestly believe that their assaulting has helped them professionally. But Joe Biden believes his handsiness has helped him. And I think he's right. Joe Biden believes, and he's one of the most successful politicians there is, you know, he attained the vice presidency. He believes that his success is rooted in empathy, and his empathy is so often expressed via touch. Again, that doesn't excuse it or make it right. It doesn't excuse making anyone uncomfortable. I'm not that type of person, but it is plausible that Biden never even conceived that he was inconveniencing, let alone assaulting anyone. And if Joe Biden had conceived this in 1972, internalized the dictum, don't ever put your hands on anyone who doesn't ask first, it probably would have hurt his career. I mean, he wouldn't be the Joe Biden that we know, which is a very successful politician, the success largely based on his capacity for empathy. And just as the Pope touches parishioners and parents touch their children and children hug their grandparents. Joe Biden, I believe, saw himself in this mode. I think there's no evidence he got any sort of sexual or powerful satisfaction from any of these touches. There's a lot of evidence that Joe Biden saw rubbing someone's shoulders or putting his forehead next to theirs as just a much more efficient, impactful form of a letter to a constituent, as doing what a leader does, what someone who wants to show that he cares does. And you know what? The testimony of so many of the people that he's ever done that to or for agrees with that assessment. And if Joe Biden saw himself in that mode, and regarded the vast majority of his interactions as positive, and most of them were met with thanks. They conferred upon him the belief, which is also paired with a fair amount of proof, that he was making connections, that he was bonding with people, and that therefore those acts do not fit in with any type of the type. Anyway, there really isn't a type or a belief structure or a philosophy, a reasonable philosophy, that gets you to any sort of firm conclusion in this case. Slogans, hashtags, habits of mind, and warnings against overcorrection, they're all rough proxies and imperfect ones for the real question, which is, did Joe Biden rape Tara Reid or not? Either way, one of the two people in that sentence is lying, as is anyone besides them who tells you they know one way or the other. And that's it for today's show. And this is the GIST six-year anniversary. So I want to buy associate producer Margaret Kelly the traditional six-year anniversary gift in the U.S., iron. Say it with iron. I want to give GIST producer Daniel Schrader the perfect gift the traditional six-year anniversary gift in the UK, candy, which could lead to iron fillings, thus satisfying the US's tradition. The gist, I want to give the gist, the traditional six-year anniversary gift in the US in modern times, a desk set. God damn, is that unromantic. 
Nothing says I love you like a ballpoint pen in a blotter. Oomperu, dapperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening.